In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's look together in God's word at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is on uh, page 989 in that blue Bible in front of you if you want to follow along there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2, we'll cover verses 1 through 12 this morning. So let's start reading together in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with, still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Back in the 1950s, there was a famous open water swimmer from San Diego, California. Her name was Florence Chadwick. And in 1950, she became the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions from England to France and from France back to England. Well, a couple years later in 1952, she set out to swim from Catalina Island off the coast of California to the coast of California, about a 26 mile swim. How many of you are like, it kind of makes me tired to drive 26 miles, much less swim 26 miles. That would be incredible. So when she set out on this morning to swim, it was really chilly. It was foggy when she started. She had her team around her in boats to encourage her, to protect her. When you read a couple articles about it, some of the people in the boats, their job was to keep any sharks away while she's swimming in the water, as if it wasn't hard enough already. But she was 15 hours into the swim, and she became so physically and emotionally exhausted that she started to ask to be pulled out of the water. Take me out, I'm done. I can't finish. Take me out, I'm done. And those in the boats around her encouraged her, you're almost there, keep going. You're almost there, keep going. She swam for another hour after that, but the fog grew so thick and she grew so tired, she couldn't even see the people in the boats around her and she just gave up. 
She got in the boat. It took her to shore. And when she got to the shore, she realized that at the point she gave up, she was only a half mile away from the shore. She had swam 25 and a half miles of the 26-mile journey and had a half mile left before she quit. What's interesting about the story is that next day, the next day at a press conference as she was speaking to reporters about this attempt for her, she told them, she said, I don't want to make excuses for myself. I'm the one who asked to be pulled out of the water. But she said, but I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. The fog was so thick, she couldn't see it. Florence Chadwick's experience is not all that different from what it's like to walk with Jesus in this world. It is a journey of endurance and the fog of trials and temptations that we face along the way make all of us at some point or another make us want to just give up. It's not worth it. It's too hard. But God graciously and kindly and clearly in his word holds out a picture of the shore. He holds out a picture of the shore of heaven that to, to give us to keep in mind so we can keep going, to motivate us to keep going. And as we look at 2 Thessalonians 2 this morning, we are given a picture of that shore. Now, part of this passage might seem like the fog at first, not the shore. It's a lot of interesting things going on here. But it's meant to be the shore that takes us through the fog. And God has given us these truths through Paul to help Christians keep going even when we want to give up. And what we're going to see as we go through these 12 verses is you're going to see a really clear command and then truths under that command that motivate us to obey it, that tell us why we should go in that direction. And as we move into verses 1 and 2, the command to sum it up is don't be shaken, be steadfast. Don't be shaken, be steadfast. In the first three verses of this chapter, Paul clearly lays out what he's talking about. We're going to see that starting in verse 1. Let's look there together. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. This whole section is about that. It's about when Jesus is going to come again, the time that he's going to gather his people to himself. And what Paul's doing here is he's given us a further explanation of what he already talked about back in 1 Thessalonians. You can go back and see chapter 4, verses 13 to about verse 17 is where he's already talked to these same people about this. But they've asked questions. There's things that are unclear. So he's responding to some of those questions. But there's going to be a lot of other secondary truths that we could spend time on and talk about in these verses. And it would be good and right, and maybe you cover some of those in your life class next Sunday when you look at this passage. But I don't want those secondary truths to distract us from the main truth of why it's important to keep the view of the shore and not get distracted by anything else before then. But, but why is Paul bringing this up again? He already talked about it in the first letter. Why is he talking about it again? Look what he says in verse 2. It starts to explain it a little bit. He says, we ask you, brothers, 
when it comes to the coming of our Lord Jesus, his return, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So here's the first version of the command, the first kind of half of it. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. What would cause them to be shaken? Why, why does he have to tell them, don't panic, don't be worried? Why would he tell them this already? Well, he, he tells them at the end of verse 2, apparently they're thinking the day of the Lord has already come. Paul told them back in the first letter, Jesus is going to come back. When he does, all God's people will be united to him. And the Thessalonians, because of a spoken word or a spirit or some letter that said it was from Paul but wasn't really from Paul, told them Jesus has already come back. That's a problem if you think that. Because it seems to go against everything that Paul has already told them. Apparently, they were thinking, not not that they thought they missed it, but that they were already experiencing it. And this is going to be a hard part throughout this whole section. We're only hearing one side of the conversation, right? So Paul has heard questions from them. He's responding back. We're only hearing one side of it. But we're going to try to put together the pieces here. But you can imagine the confusion if you've been promised Jesus is going to come back and when he comes back, he will fully and forever defeat evil. And then you've heard that already happen, but in your day-to-day life, like the Thessalonians, you're still experiencing temptation. You're still being persecuted for your faith in Christ. That would be extremely and painfully confusing. So that's why Paul says in verse 3, he kind of rewords the command he already gave him in verse 2. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. This was the Thessalonians' main problem. They were deceived. They're being deceived. They're hearing statements that claim to be true, but are really false, but they believe that they're true. So they're deceived, they're tricked, they're believing the wrong things. And all of this helps us understand why Paul brings up this topic. He wants to correct their thinking so they won't be shaken, so they won't be alarmed, so they won't be worried, so they won't be deceived. The problem is, when we have wrong thinking about what the future is going to be like, it causes us to want to give up now. Because for them, if Jesus had already come back, and this is as good as it gets, then why keep following him? But when we have right thinking about the future and what God is going to do in the future, it will motivate us to keep going. It will motivate, on, motivate us to press on and endure. And the opposite of being alarmed, the opposite of being shaken, the opposite of being deceived is being steadfast, steady, calm resolute and focused on following Christ. But to be sure, just as in 1 Thessalonians, is also true in 2 Thessalonians, Paul's goal here is not to predict the future. And God's goal in giving us this truth and preserving this letter for us is not to enable us to predict the future. It's to encourage and pastor and shepherd our hearts God wants us to understand this in a way that strengthens our faith and our hope in his promises. The goal of these verses is to bring us comfort, not cause us confusion. 
Paul says, I don't want you to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So if we get to the end of this and we're all shaken and stirred up and scared, we haven't understood what he said. So how do we remain steadfast and not be shaken? How do we remain steadfast and not be deceived? Well, I think the first thing Paul is going to say here is I want you to see God's plan. See God's plan. So that was the command in verses 1 through 3. Now here come the truths that are going to support it, explain it, enable us to obey it. Let's look at verse 3 together. Verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is where, for many of us, the passage goes from being clear to unclear. I was tracking through the first three and a half verses. Now I'm confused. It it can go from being the shore to being the fog. But that's not Paul's goal. Paul tells them, you can know Jesus hasn't already returned. You haven't missed it. It hasn't happened. Because there are two things that must happen before that day arrives. And he says those two things, this comes from verse 3, that that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Both events will happen before Jesus comes back. Well, it's not really all that helpful if we don't know what those things are, right? Okay, it's not going to happen until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Okay, but what's the rebellion and who's the man of lawlessness? Well, let's take it step by step here. What's the rebellion? He says, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. There's a lot of different views on this. There's a lot of different views on everything else in this passage. So just be prepared for that ahead of time. Some people say the rebellion is something that's already happened in the past. Some people say it's something that's happening right now in the world and in the church. Some people say it's something that's going to happen in the future. No one can know for sure. So with everything else in this passage, as we talk and speak about it and think about it, it's really important that we do so with humility and patience and openness, but trying to see the things that are clear at the same time. But I do think we can get some clarity on what Paul's talking about because I think Jesus talked about a lot of the same things. So keep a mark here in 2 Thessalonians 2. We're going to come right back to it. And let's go a few books back to the left to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. This will also be on the screen if it's easier for you to follow along there. Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to start reading in verse 3, and as we read through this together, think about what Jesus is saying and listen for phrases that sound similar to what Paul just said in 2 Thessalonians 2. You're going to hear a handful of them. So back, Matthew 24, starting in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him, him being Jesus, privately, saying, tell us. 
When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Same kind of thing the Thessalonians were wrestling with. Has this already happened? When's this going to happen? And Jesus answers them, verse 4, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Sounds a lot like let no one deceive you in any way. Verse 5, for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Paul said the same thing. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. He's talking about those who follow Christ. Here's what's going to happen to you in the end. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Verse 10, I think, is a further explanation of the rebellion. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Paul doesn't give us a lot of details. And Jesus doesn't connect every single dot or answer every single question that we would have. So we can't say for sure what he means, but either way, the main point is the same. Before Jesus returns, there's going to be a climactic turning away from Christ. There's going to be a climactic turning away from trusting and following Jesus. But that has to happen before he comes. So Paul's saying, Jesus hasn't come back yet. That hasn't happened. Back in 2 Thessalonians 2, he says the next event that must happen before Jesus returns doesn't exactly make things clearer for us. He says, this is back in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and here's the second one, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The most natural question, as soon as you read that, is to say, okay, who is that? Who is the man of lawlessness? It sounds like if Jesus doesn't come back until he comes, it would be really helpful to know who he is. There have been different answers to that question in every generation of the church. And you could take four books written by four really smart people that know a lot about the Bible and see four very different opinions. But we have to be careful not to interpret passages like this in a way that could only be understood during our lifetime. So if our understanding of this only makes sense in 2022, but it wouldn't have made sense in the year 122 to Christians, that's probably not right. There has to be truth here that we can pull out no matter where we are, when we live, if we're following Christ. Just like with the rebellion, some people say this is somebody that already came in the past. Other people say this could be somebody that's on earth right now. Other people say this is somebody that's going to come in the future and he hasn't come yet. But let's put more focus on what's clear in these verses than what's unclear in these verses. Paul doesn't say exactly who he is, but he does describe him. He says in verse 4, this man when he comes, he's going to oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship. He's going to oppose God. He's going to deceive people into believing he is God and that his words are true. And he's going to pretend to be the lawgiver even though his commands contradict God's commands in his word. At the heart of his actions, whoever he is, whenever he comes, 
is to lead people to worship the created rather than the creator. And this has been the goal of sin since the very beginning. But notice a description that's really easy to skip over. It's easy to see the name, the phrase man of lawlessness, and then to get caught up in what's going on in verse 4. Again, worthwhile things to think about. But at the end of verse 3, there's another description of him. The man of lawlessness was going to be revealed, the son of destruction. The son of destruction. Whoever the man of lawlessness is, he's a son of destruction. He is destined to be destroyed, is the truth. His defeat is guaranteed, is what Paul's describing. I don't want you and I to get overly caught up in who the man of lawlessness is, Because the main point of these verses is not the identity of the man of lawlessness, it's the destiny of the man of lawlessness. It's similar to if I was going to pick up somebody from the airport that I had never met before, and I called them on the way, said, hey, I'm I'm almost to the airport, how can I know where to pick you up? And the person says, "Uh, well, I just want you to know I have a wife, I have two kids, uh, grew up on the West Coast, but since I was about a teenager, I've been living on the East Coast, and just kind of between jobs right now. I'd say, that that does not help me pick you up from the airport at all. Your identity of who you are doesn't help me. But if he was to say, well, I have uh, dark hair, I'm wearing a ball cap, and I have on a blue shirt, jeans, I'm going to be right outside door three. That's helpful. Then I can, that description of him is more helpful than the identity of him. And the, the same is true here. Paul is giving us a description, not his identity, because the description of who he is and his destiny is more important than us knowing his identity. And Paul's not bringing this up, remember, to make Christians worried or fearful or panicky. He said back in verse 2, I don't want you to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So there's something about this truth that should have a calming effect on us. He wants us to be confident that God has a plan, a specific plan. That no matter how awful some of these statements may be, God is still in control. I'll show you where I get that. I I know the phrases rebellion and man of lawlessness stand out in verse 3. But what should catch our attention the most is where you see at the very beginning, very middle of verse 3, let no one deceive you, for that day will not come unless... That day will not come until there's a specific plan. There's a specific timeline. God's plan is in place. And whoever the man of lawlessness is, he's not going to mess up God's plan because it's part of God's plans that he's going to be destroyed. He will not win. He will lose. And you and I don't need to know all the specifics of the plan in order to know that God has a plan for the future. We don't have to know the details of the plan because our faith is not in the plan. Our faith is in the God who created the plan and the God who's going to execute the plan to perfection. So see his plan, Paul is saying. And he's going to keep bringing up truth to correct their thinking and anchor their faith. And not only does he want us to see his God's plan, he also wants us to see God's truth. See God's truth. Where I get this is in verse 5. Let's look at verse 5 together. Do you not remember 
that when I was still with you, I told you these things. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? We've seen before that back in Acts chapter 17, Paul spent some time, some amount of time with the Thessalonians. And even though it was cut short, he had time to teach them, to teach them truth about God, to teach them truth about what God's going to do in the future. But what's interesting here is he's reminding them, you and I have already talked about this. That's another thing that makes this passage hard, by the way, is not only are we just hearing one side of the conversation, but there's also other conversations that have happened that we have no, no idea about. But still, there's truth that God has preserved for us here that he wants us to have. If, the, if God wanted us to have more detail, he would have put it in here. But notice twice here in verses 5 and 6, there you see this reference to remembering. Verse 5 Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And verse 6, and you know, to the Thessalonians, you know what's restraining this man from coming. He's told them not to be deceived about wrong ways of thinking about the second coming of Jesus. And based on what he says here, a big factor for them not being deceived is them remembering the truth Paul has taught them. We're going to come back to that in a minute, but let's look at the specifics of what they know. Verse 6, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. So here's another reason, Paul says, that you can know Jesus hasn't come back yet, because the restrainer hasn't been removed. The restrainer of evil. There's no doubt Then and now, evil is present in the world. Evil is real in the world. That's what he means by verse 7. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Sin's already happening. Evil's already happening. Rebellion's already happening. But he says evil hasn't reached its peak yet. The identity of who the restrainer is and when he's going to be out of the way is another huge question from this passage. And there's probably a wider variety of answers to that question than any other part of this passage. Again, we can't know for sure, but that doesn't mean we miss the force of what Paul's saying. Even though we don't know who or what is restraining evil, we do know God is using some means to keep evil from reaching its full potential in the world. Though we don't know what's holding back evil, we know it's being held back. So remember God's truth, Paul's saying. We know God is the author of history. He is in ultimate control. He will bring history to an end in his wise and perfect timing. That's why Paul tells them not to be deceived, but to remember the truth they know. The connection for us is that just as the Thessalonians are to counter their fear and worry by remembering truth, we also counter fear and worry in our own hearts by remembering truth. When things are unclear, you're seeing things on the news, you're hearing other teachers or churches say things about, well, the future is, means this and this, and this is happening now, which means this and this and this, and it's causing confusion or worry. Remember what you know about God. Remember what you know about his truth. We can know nothing about the future except what God tells us. And if our confidence and our hope about the future is in anything other than God's truth, we're going to be shaken, we're going to be alarmed, we're going to panic. But if we remember his truth, we will be steadfast 
That's why this rhythm of us gathering together week after week to learn God's truth together is so vital. While life classes that you're in and Bible studies that you're in and other times where you're gathering together to look at God's truth with other people, it is crucial because without coming to this book over and over, we're going to be alarmed. We're going to panic. We're going to be shaken. But remember what you know and go deeper into what you know from the word of God. The next thing Paul's going to say, the last thing Paul's going to say here is don't be alarmed, don't be shaken, be steadfast, and be steadfast by seeing God's plan. Be steadfast by seeing his truth. And lastly, be steadfast by seeing God's power. By seeing his power. I keep bringing up attributes of God because I think that's the main point of what Paul's saying. He's telling these believers truths about the future to show and remind them who God is. And this becomes clear and clear as the chapter moves forward. You see his power really clearly starting in verse 8. Let's, let's all look at this verse. You do not want to miss this verse. Verse 8. So after he says the restrainer is going to be there, then the restrainer is out of the way. Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. That's the man of lawlessness back from verse 3. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Paul returns to talking about the man of lawlessness again. And we learned earlier, what, remember that phrase that we saw, that description of him, son of destruction? Well, now we see who will destroy him and how he's going to be destroyed. The, the, man's, the man of lawlessness' main goal is to deceive people and lead them away from God. But God has a purpose in the appearing of Jesus that is stronger than, than the man of lawlessness' purpose. He has a plan that is stronger than any plan of evil. God's purpose is that the man of lawlessness will be revealed so that Jesus will destroy him. And notice he's called, it says, whom the Lord Jesus. That title of Lord points to Jesus' authority and greatness over all things. That no higher, or pow higher power or authority exists than Jesus Christ. And I know what you're saying, but okay, but who is the man of lawlessness? We got to talk about him. We got to answer the question. If we leave here not knowing, then why do we even come? More important than you and I knowing who the man of lawlessness is, is Jesus knowing who he is. You and I are not the ones that will destroy him. Jesus is. When you were in the midst of hardship and persecution and failure, would it help you in those moments to know who the man of lawlessness is? Not really. It may satisfy your curiosity. But God has not given us his word just to satisfy our curiosity. He's given us his word to transform our lives and satisfy our souls. So how much more would it help? Can you feel how helpful it would be to, to know that no matter what tragedy or hardship or failure you face in this life, there's going to come a day when Jesus completely wipes evil off the face of the earth. Isn't that so much more helpful than just knowing the identity of the man of lawlessness? It may make you sound smart in conversations, but it won't feed your soul when life is hard. As we sang earlier, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. 
one little word shall fail him. Knowing the identity of the man of lawlessness, again, it's a worthwhile conversation, but ultimately it will not anchor your faith. But knowing that no one can stop King Jesus from defeating him is a bedrock for a weary and anxious soul. And I love the way Paul describes his defeat here. You know this kind of scene in the superhero movies, Marvel movies, Star Wars, any kind of action movie where there's some big battle at the end between the good guy and the bad guy. And you know there's always the point where it looks like the good guy is going to be defeated. Like the the evil guy is just having his way and he's gonna finally finish off the good guy. But right at the very end, the good guy comes and defeats the evil guy. It just gives you that, you're like excited about it when you're watching it at home or in the movie theater. This is not like that at all. Not at all. He says, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. This is less like the ending of a superhero movie and more like you just blowing out a candle. He will kill with the breath of his mouth. This isn't some huge strain and energy between good and evil. Jesus shows up just by his appearing. Evil is destroyed. The man of lawlessness is not the main character of these verses. Jesus is. And I want us to see the unrivaled conquering power of Jesus and realize that if you put your faith in Christ, these events that he's talking about don't have to give you fear, they give you hope. They give you motivation to keep going. They're meant to take away your fear, to calm your anxiety, to remove your panic, to grow steadfastness in you and in me. And Paul ends this section by saying this. He brings it to a close, starting in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So if verse 8 was Paul showing us the power of Jesus, the power of God in victory, this is also, the rest of it is God's power in judgment. And he gives us two distinct groups at the very end. He gives us those who believe the lie of evil and face God's judgment and those who believe the truth of God and experience the victory of Christ. There are people and there are going to be more people that give themselves to evil because they don't love the truth. These are the people that will face God's judgment. And part of God's judgment, Paul says, is him letting them walk down the paths that lies take them down. And though believers in Christ aren't in that group by the grace of God, he tells us this to encourage our strength and our resolve to persevere and endure, that though evil is strong and will get stronger, Jesus is going to come back and defeat evil completely. Though temptation to walk away from God is strong and will get stronger, it is temporary. But Jesus' rule and reign is everlasting. God wants us to know that though it may seem easier, it may seem more comfortable to compromise, to walk the path of the world, it's not worth it in the end. It may feel more exciting. It may feel more satisfying now, 
But in view of eternity, it's not worth them. God's ways are everlasting. God's rule is everlasting. And for those of you in this room that are believing the lies of evil and following ways that rebel against God, this hasn't happened yet. There's still time to turn to Christ, to follow him today, to trust him. You may, you may if you don't go to church a lot or you're just coming to check this out or you're, you're thinking, yeah, these are the exact kind of verses I would expect to hear at church. Consider this as a kind warning from the Lord that he's telling you what's going to happen so you run to Christ and you're not in that group anymore. You're rescued through him. And those who follow Jesus will spend everlasting life with him even as we endure evil in this world because he is able to keep us by his power. Two months after Florence Chadwick attempted that swim from Catalina Island to California and failed, she tried again. And again, a thick fog set in. She could not see the boats around her. She could not see the shore. But she said this time she had a mental image of the shore. She had a mental image of what she saw when the boat took her that first time and she failed. And that mental image allowed her to keep enduring the pain and keep enduring the exhaustion. It didn't take away the pain. It didn't take away the difficulty. It didn't take away the exhaustion. But it gave her the motivation to keep going, and that image of the shore enabled her to finish that 26-mile swim that time. And I think if I remember right from the article, she would go on to do it two more times. And through the fog of temptation, of evil, of things that can be confusing or unclear, through the fog of our trials, through the fog of our own frustrations, we need to keep sight of the shore. The fog may keep us from seeing the shore, but it can't take away the shore. The fog may keep us from seeing it, but it can't make the shore not exist. Evil in this world is hard. Evil in this world is real. And I'm saying evil that's in here and evil that's around us. But that evil cannot keep the plans and truths and power of God from accomplishing what he's going to accomplish. There's a lot of questions that remain from this passage. And maybe you leave here frustrated that I didn't answer them. But no matter what happens between now, no matter what the answers to some of those questions are, and what happens between now and Jesus' return, God is on his throne and we are in his hands. His plan is sure. His truth is unwavering. His power is unstoppable. So we don't have to be shaken. We can be steadfast as we wait for our Savior to return. Let's pray together.